welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, part of the Informed Traveler radio show, which is heard each week on Chorus Radio. It's a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. This is our first podcast of 2022 and the start of our 14th year on Chorus Radio with the radio show and the fourth year doing this podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in each week. With that in mind, we're going to look back at a couple of my favorite interviews from last year. One of the highlights for me this past year was traveling to Las Vegas last September to attend the IPW Travel Conference hosted by the U.S. Travel Association. While I was there, I got a tour of the Mob Museum in Las Vegas and learn about the history of the power struggle between the mob, law enforcement, and a little bit of history of Las Vegas itself. It's a fascinating place and a tour I highly recommend when in Las Vegas. After my return from Vegas, I did a phone conversation with Claire White, Educational Programs Manager with the Mob Museum, so we'll replay that for you later in the podcast. One of the other highlights for me this past year was traveling to Cranbrook, B.C., staying at the St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. It was there I got to meet and talk with Sophie Pierre, former chief of the Occam First Nation and board chair with the St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino, And we talked about her experience of being a former student at St. Eugene when it was a residential school and how it transformed from a residential school to the resort it is today. So to start things out, here is that conversation for you now. This is such a fascinating uh, history behind this building and this area. Let's go back 100 plus years and just tell me the story of the First Nations in the area, what life was like, and then, you know, how this building transformed. Sure. Yes, be happy, happy to do that. Well, this, uh, the, this is the homelands of the Kutunaka Nation, Kutunaka people. Kutunaka have been here since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our history goes back uh, thousands of years. And we are, um, as a Kutunaka people, we have a language isolate. Uh, we are the only indigenous group that speaks Kutunaka language. And we have our place names and, you know, we know, we know our homelands um, primarily because we have our place names and our history around that. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the resort and the, um, the mission, the, this all started um, in the mid-1800s with the arrival of the missionaries. So, yeah, in the mid-1800s, of course, it was the missionaries, um, along with uh, the traders and, like, the fur, fur traders and the other explorers as they're coming through. Um, David Thompson came through this region, as did other explorers. But uh, it was the Jesuits who um, created the mission mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And um, they built up uh, a church and a hospital. And as the um, colonization moved west, mm-hmm. um, the Indian reserves were being created. 1884 was when our reserves were being created. Ktunaha are in the Rocky Mountain Trench on both sides of the border of what's today the United States and Canada. We have Ktunaha in Montana, Idaho, and Washington State as well as in Southeast British Columbia. And our, our homelands uh, go from the Big Bend of the Columbia, we follow the Columbia River, mm-hmm. Big Bend of the Columbia in the north, mm-hmm. along a place called Yakleke, along what is now known as the Arrow Lakes area. 
down into Idaho and um, down south to uh, south of Missoula, Montana. Oh wow! That's that is the homelands of the Tonaka, mm -hmm. and we know our our homelands because those are where we have place names and we have stories and we know we have a creation story actually that that talks about this whole water system and um, the the river system with the the Kootenai and the Columbia rivers. So this is our homelands. And um, so with, with the arrival of the, the missionaries and then behind them came the settlers, the reservations were created. And one of the reservations, my own, which is now, um, it was known as the St. Mary's Indian Reserve. It's now Akam. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was created, um, or the, the mission, the, the reserve was uh, set aside in 1884. But the majority of the people, they did not live like right in this area. In fact, the area where our people did live, um, and, and our people were nomadic, so we used our entire homelands. Mm -hmm. But there were places where you came to specifically at different times of the year or at different years, was the area that is now Cranbrook. That was called Akiskaqlit. And it's because it's a very nice spot. It's right in between two creeks, mm -hmm. and that's where the Akis that means two. Akis it, so it's it's that area between the two creeks. And um, the settlers came in and you know recognized that that was a choice piece of land, and of course, the reserves were being created. And um, you know, so we get the lands that you know, quite frankly, settlers didn't want, mm -hmm. and that's that's where our reserve is now. Um, so the mission was was built, it's, they started to build it around 1850, 1860, and um, in 18, or 1894, the um, Moye mines were, were being, mm -hmm. quote, discovered. The revenue from the, that, mount, that mine, mm -hmm. um, given to the church, given to Father Kokla, and he built the church that we have here. Okay. Uh, and it was opened in 1897, and it actually has stained glass that was shipped here from Italy. Oh my gosh. So it is a fabulous, fabulous little church. The mission um, had, had started to be built around and the original hospital, St. Eugene Hospital, was built down here. And then it was moved into Cranbrook. Okay. After it, uh, yeah, uh, when the, the town of Cranbrook was, was being developed, mm -hmm. the, the hospital was moved up there. This particular building that we're sitting in right now this was started in 1910, and it opened as an industrial school, which is you know the, what was what the, the residential schools were called at the time. This particular building opened in 1912, and it stayed as a residential school until 1970. Really, that long, eh? Hey? Yes. And I was here um, as a student from 1956 till 1965. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I know it seems kind of weird, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, sitting I in here now that it's I would know, it's think hotel. so but you know for us it's um, this this is what we wanted to do with this building um, it, it's the the story behind what we did and why we did it is a very important story and mm -hmm. I think that that's partly why you're here you yeah to hear that story let's pick up uh, in 1910 where you mentioned this became a residential school and I mean, we don't have to go through the whole time period of what it is now, but from that point to 1970, when it closed, you had a vision of what this place should be at some point. Well, 
that vision of what it could be came much later. Yeah. Um, it, the, the school um, ran from 1912 to 1970 as a residential school, yeah. as an industrial school and then residential school. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the, at that point, it was run by the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, were the priests and the brothers here, and the Sisters of Charity. Now, the, um, when I, I was here, um, I came in as a student in 1956. I was six years old, and I stayed here till 1965. And so I pretty much grew up here. There were, at the time that I was here, there were about 150 students, um, most, of, you know, most years. And it was pretty evenly split between boys and girls, 75 mm -hmm. boys, 75 girls. And um, so we had kind of three, three sections. We had the juniors, um, intermediates and seniors that went up to grade eight. The, the classes went up to grade eight. So from grade one to grade eight hmm. is, uh, was the schooling that I got here. Um, when this first opened as a hotel, what what was going on in yeah, your mind as well, a former student? I, I, you actually, must have had all kinds of yeah. things going through your head. Actually, I, I wrote a piece for the um, Healing Foundation, um, and I, that's where I start, is that I'm, I'm standing on the front steps, but I'm standing there as a grandmother, watching my granddaughter cut the ribbon, help cut the ribbon with our Delta Hotel's um, senior manager. Like, Isn't, yeah, they're, they're here to cut the ribbon. Eh? And, um, you know, I talk about how I looked across look down the, the alley of trees and down, you know, that, that walkway and thought about, you know, all those, those years ago yeah. when I, um, yeah, when I walked up that same walkway, you know, as a little six year old and, and, you know, quite frankly, at the time I was quite excited because my mother told me I was going to school and she bought me some new clothes and new shoes. And, you know, so I was, I was pretty excited, but as we're getting closer and, and I see the nun standing at the top of the steps and and then I realize what's really happening here mm. is yeah, yeah. And then and then I watch my mother leave and that was yeah, that that was really hard. Oh, and there were and then of course there are a lot of other kids around and, yeah. and they're you know, all the kids are crying and and, and I think um, you know, a, a real uh, difficult part is watching the brothers and sisters being separated. You know, the, so the boys had to go one way and the girls the other way. And then through the whole time, the 10 months that were here, um, the, you can't speak to your, your siblings. In my case, I'm an only child, so that, mm -hmm. that wasn't you know, something that, that I lived through. But I know what it was like because my best friend, um, she had brothers. And, and, and even for when we're juniors, you know, when you see the kids my age, um, couldn't interact with their, you know, like if they're, if they're hurt and yeah. their, their older sister tried to, or an older cousin tried to, yeah. you know, console the child, that was not, that was a no-no, like you would be quite severely punished for that. You just, you, you stayed within, like, that's why I mentioned that there yeah. were three sections, junior, intermediate, yeah. senior. Yeah. So the juniors, we looked after each other, as opposed, <sighs> even if you had an older sister. They're the original steps. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, they've, they've been fixed up. Yeah, but obviously, <laughs> I mean, so oh, yeah, they're but safe to walk on. But, but they're, yeah, that's, that's the way the steps have always been. We didn't change that part of the building. That's great. I'm glad you didn't. Because like I said, when, when we first, um, before we started this, um, when we were chatting, I couldn't help but think how many children's yes. footsteps were going up those yeah. steps for the yeah. first time and what was going on in their minds. And yeah. I mean, you can't help but think that. At least I can't when, yeah. when you first well, arrive here, course, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. And you know that's the thing is that 
we we're not um, we're not hiding this. We're not we're not trying to change the 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 history. The the the, the uh, this building was a residential school. Yeah. And the his Canada's history in terms of of its history with Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to recognize that and, and and accept the truth. You know, you hear a lot about people are always talking about reconciliation. You're not going to have reconciliation if you don't first deal with the truth. Now, that's what we've built here. This is the truth. This was a former residential school. Mm -hmm. And it was our choice as Indigenous people to take this back, to yeah. reclaim this, and then to turn it into something positive so that people will never forget residential school, but they will also recognize that they're not going to keep us down there as victims forever. No, yeah, that's a great way. We can it. take this back, and we have, yeah. and we've created a good future for you know the, the generations to come. That was the words of our elder. When we were in a meeting and we were talking about how much we had lost, this was in the 70s, and uh, we were talking about we're wanting to revive revitalize the Ktunaka language as I meant that's why I mentioned it's an isolate. Mm -hmm. If the Ktunaka language is lost, it's lost to the planet. We lose the Ktunaka language, it's gone forever. Yeah. So we were talking about that and we were realizing that we had to do something because we were losing our elders. Mm -hmm. We were losing our language speakers. So we were talking about that. And all of us were blaming this place. And finally Mary Paul said, look at if you think you lost so much in that building, go back in there and get it. This was already becoming very decrepit. Mm -hmm. It was. It had been shut down. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time she told us this, it had been shut down for, you know, at least a half a dozen years. You know, it was getting just more and more deteriorated to the point where, in the 90s, we realized that if we were going to do something with the building, we had to do it then. We, and so we started putting together our, our plans. Um, we knew that we needed to build something that was going to become self-sufficient. Um, you know, we had a lot of ideas. People wanted, to, you know, thinking about keeping it as a school or mm -hmm. keeping it as a some kind of health facility or like some social um, use for it. Mm -hmm. But that we knew uh, would always de demand support yeah. from government and we're not like that's not what we wanted to do yeah so that's why we uh, we, we just took this giant <laughs> leap and i recall when we were going around with our business plan like you know some of the people that that we talked to they would say a former res like who would want to stay in a former <laughs> residential school like seriously plus we're off the beaten track yeah you know we're not on any major highway yeah um we do have an airport you know that's very close to us here mm -hmm. um but you know the, the it was it was those words of our elder and i think that as we started to plan this we spent two years of what i call internal marketing we spent two years talking with our people mm -hmm. about what we would do with this building. We had those, you know, particularly of my generation, who wanted to just knock it down, yeah. you know, get it off the face of the earth because they were hurt so bad. Mm. But we had more people who were saying, we can make it into something positive. It's a building. It's actually quite an impressive building. It is actually. It, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. And we could do something with it. and. And we could make it so that we'll, nobody will ever, I mean, if we knock it down, 
then we'll, we'll, get, we'll come to a, play, a time when generations will have no recollection. Where is the what, what we've done here? You come here and it's, it's a beautiful hotel. Yes. But it has a history. And, you know, like all old buildings, you know, people are interested in, in history. Yeah. And again, this is where we, we always will tell the truth of what happened. Yeah, you've done a nice, I used the word monument um, when we mm-hmm. were chatting previously. Um, you've done a nice job of balancing it because um, there's little reminders, mm-hmm. there's images, there's photos, there's, you know, I mean, the brick wall is yep. definitely a reminder. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. But it's also a place where you don't want to, you know, bring people down. And like, you yes. want people come yes. here for weddings and celebrations yes. and they have, you have the beautiful golf course and it is yeah. surrounded by beautiful land now. Um, yes. Like I say, you've done a great job. It is beautiful. The rooms are great. You have a beautiful golf course. What do you think the past students that are no longer with us here are thinking about this place, looking well, down? I mean, I, I went to school with a lot of them who died very young. And um, I've, I, I believe that had they been in my position, they would have done the same thing. They would have wanted to take it back. They would not have, you know, I, I know the spirit of, of all those beautiful children, and they would not have been wanted to be beaten down and, and seen as some kind of victim. Yeah. They would have wanted to take it back, too, because that's what we've done. You yeah. Know, we've just we've taken it back. Yeah, and it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Former Chief Sophie Pierre of the Occam First Nation, now board chair for the St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. Eugene.ca is the website. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Well, one of the other highlights for me this past year was traveling to Las Vegas last September to attend the IPW Travel Conference hosted by the U.S. Travel Association. While I was there, I got to tour the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. It is a fascinating place, and I highly recommend visiting it next time you're in Las Vegas. And after my tour, I chatted with Claire White. She is the Educational Program Manager for the Mob Museum, and here's that conversation for you now. How long has the Mob Museum been open now? We opened on February 14th, 2012 in downtown Las Vegas. Uh, We picked February 14th as the anniversary of the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago, which took place in 1929. And we have, uh, we've just kept expanding since then. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, it's a cool place. I loved it. Uh, It it took me about two or three hours. I kind of lost track of time when I was walking through there. there. And we will talk about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre uh, display that you have uh, there. But uh, the building itself is, is a story, right? And the role it had to play when it comes to the history of organized crime. Yes. We are very lucky that we are located within the original federal courthouse and post office for the city of Las Vegas. We are just a few blocks from uh, Las Vegas' downtown Fremont Street District, where the giant LED light canopy is. And just a couple blocks away, you know, it's, it's still a little bit more of a quieter neighborhood. We're still downtown, but we 
are lucky to be in this historical building that's exactly where it originally was. And the building itself is very much a part of organized crime history, not only because we were the site for a number of uh, federal district court cases related to mobsters, but because on November 15th, 1950, we were one of uh, 14 sites for the U.S. Senate Kefauver Committee hearings, which investigated the role of organized crime on interstate commerce in the 50s. And that is a big part of the tour, learning that whole story of how the, the government fought back against organized crime. But let's just review the experience overall, how the tour begins. Um, you have three, <laughs> three levels. You start at the top, and it, and it basically is a chronological following, right? That's correct, yes. We have, like you said, three full floors of traditional exhibits, and then we also have a basement, which is a working speakeasy and distillery, but also provides some additional historical exhibits as well. Let's talk about some of those historical exhibits and displays. St. Valentine's Day is the one that kind of smacks you in the face almost literally when you see that wall. Tell us the story about that. Yes. So on February 14th of 1929, seven members of the George Bugs Moran uh, Northside Gang in Chicago were gunned down by associates connected to Al Capone's Southside Gang. And the wall in which uh, these men were, were murdered is now on display in the Mob Museum. It took place in this garage in what was actually sort of a quiet suburban neighborhood of Chicago at the time, but it was used by the Northside Gang as one of their uh, liquor hideouts, this garage. And so once the massacre took place, the the people who had been renting it clearly got out of town. And it was really challenging to rent the space out. So by the 1960s, the owner decided to just tear down the garage. And instead of getting rid of the bricks, they sold them off. At uh, They essentially did an auction and the man who purchased them his name was George Patey who was from Vancouver and he wanted to create this traveling exhibit that would go around both Canada and the states and he really envisioned this as as this you know revolutionary idea of moving the museum around the <laughs> around the two countries but it just didn't really take off he wound up putting the bricks uh, he he had a grid, so he knew each time he would tear them down exactly where to put them back up in order. And he wound up putting them in the men's restroom of a Vancouver nightclub. <laughs> and then <laughs> when that closed, his his family, his his children and his nieces and nephews sort of inherited it. And around the time that the museum here was being developed, one of his nieces lives in a neighboring community, Henderson, here in southern Nevada. And she said, hey, hey, I can, I can facilitate getting you those bricks if you want to put them on display. So we have the majority of them on display, um, arranged ex- exactly as they would have been in the actual wall. And it's really, for us, it's one of our premier artifacts. Mm-hmm. It is a visual representation of that of that rise in crime that happened during Prohibition. Prohibition was the best thing that ever happened to organized crime in the United States, but it was also the first time that the average American sort of realized, oh gosh, this is something that I, I, I need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only that, there's also the autopsy reports from the, yes. the guys that were killed. I mean, it really is a, a, 
lack of a better term, a really cool display, even though, I mean, it's <laughs> kind of morbid. The thing I liked about the your museum, though, is that you can spend as much time as you want or as little time as you want. Like, if you want to move on really quickly, you can. But there's so many different things. There's videos and audio of recordings of conversations between gangsters. Yeah. And there's so much there that, that really you can immerse yourself into. Exactly. The average guest probably spends about 90 minutes to two hours visiting the museum. But like you said, it, you can speed through. We've had people do it in an hour. Uh, we also have many guests who spend four or five hours, especially if they go down into our speakeasy. They may <laughs> sit for a couple of drinks and tack on another hour after that. And there is, there's, we really try to create something that appeals to anyone, regardless of their uh, prior knowledge of the mob, regardless of their generation. We've got videos. As you said, we've got old wiretap recordings that people can listen to, as well as a lot of traditional museum artifacts and exhibits. And there is a Las Vegas connection, too, to the mob. Uh, briefly tell us about that. Yes. So... Las Vegas predates the mob. We actually started out as a railroad town. And in 1931, the whole state of Nevada uh, passed legal gambling, which at the time was unheard of in the United States. No other state had a statewide um, uh, legal allowance for gambling. And that was sort of perfect timing for the mob to infiltrate that industry. Uh, by 1931, we're coming up on the tail end of Prohibition. Prohibition ends in 33. And mobsters know how to do a couple of things really well. They know how to run gambling rackets. They know how to run casinos. They know how to run nightclubs and brothels and all of these other <laughs> things that gets them thinking, huh, in Las Vegas, I can do what I'm good at and I can do it legally, but I can still make a little something extra by just skimming off the top and avoiding paying taxes on all of my casino earnings. And so by the, by the late 1930s and early 1940s, we see a handful of mobsters uh, coming in, traveling and, and settling here in Nevada from Southern California, from Chicago. Uh, later on, we have mobsters who come from New York and Cleveland and Kansas City. And these individuals really are, are drawn to this opportunity to use some of their skills that they've obtained illegally uh, to run legitimate businesses. And it's, you know, casinos are a perfect money laundering front. They are perfect for, <laughs> <laughs> for funneling illegally gained income in and out. And we should uh, point out that's not the way Las Vegas operates now, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. In the 1960s, we had a number of, of legal uh, shifts that made it easier for corporations to run casinos. Before the 1960s, it was really challenging not only to get a gaming license, but also to get banks to finance any sort of loans for casinos. And so as, they, as those things start to change in the 60s and moving into the 70s, uh, the mob gets pushed out. They're slow. They're slow to go. Uh, we certainly still have a mob influence in Las Vegas <laughs> as late as the 80s and, and even some outliers in the early 90s. But it is no 
longer like that. Today, our casinos are entirely run by legitimate corporations. <laughs> uh, one of the other cool things, I didn't get a chance to do it, though, is the crime lab and the firearms training simulator. Uh, I didn't get a chance to yes. do those, but those are, they look like they're really cool. They are so much fun. They are both uh, very immersive, hands-on exhibits. Our crime lab, I'm partial to. I love the forensic science stuff, and I worked pretty, uh, I was pretty active in the exhibition development for that one, so I, I am partial to it. Our crime lab allows you to sort of see the real side of forensic science, so for anyone who's a true crime fan or, you know, an NCIS, fan, any of those shows, um, our crime lab lets you see what those technologies and, and sciences really look like. People are able to explore uh, fingerprint analysis, DNA profiling, uh, medical examination, crime scene investigation, and forensic ballistics. And there are hands-on interactives for each. So, for instance, with fingerprints, you can analyze what print type you have and then get matched to a mobster who had a similar uh, fingerprint. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're a true crime fan or just a history buff in general, uh, you'll love the Mob Museum. Uh, Claire White is Educational Programs Manager at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. We could go on, Claire, because there's so many other things, but people just have to check out your website, themobmuseum.org. It was fun chatting, Claire. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you so much, Randy. And that is this week's Informed Traveler podcast. Remember, this is the podcast version of the Informed Traveler radio show, which is heard each week on Chorus Radio. You can find more information on the show at our website, theinformedtraveler.org. So thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know, leave a review, tell a friend, or you can drop me a line. My email is randy at theinformedtraveler.org. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler or follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.org.